Hi, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cotrera Show for Monday, October 19th. Tensions on the East Coast increased with acts of violence, racism, and destruction of property over the weekend when it comes to First Nations treaty rights and lobster fishing. We'll discuss the matter with Sylvain Charlebois. He's a professor of food policy and distribution at Dalhousie University. And we'll talk to a plumber in Toronto who aims to make trick-or-treat safer and support the food bank at the same time. But first, Tina Trajani sets up the province's major announcement on Waste Reduction Week. The changes won't happen overnight, but the Office of Environment Minister Jeff Urick has confirmed to Global News the list of what you can toss into your blue bin will be expanded to include plastic wrap, foils, plastic cups and straws, plates and cutlery. The province also has plans to bring apartment buildings, schools and municipal parks online with the program. But perhaps the biggest shift and one that is estimated to save municipalities over $130 million a year is that the province will no longer be responsible for the program. Those businesses that actually produce the packaging with their products will take control as opposed to municipalities splitting the cost. They will pick it up and cover the cost themselves. Making product manufacturers and retailers responsible for the program was something Yurik referenced last year. All right, that's our Tina Trajani with a really comprehensive rundown of what the government just announced. They're kicking off Waste Reduction Week by unveiling regulations to improve the Blue Box program. And the enhancements include expanding items that can be recycled, as you heard Tina list off, to making producers of the products take responsibility and um, for, for the waste that they create. I want to talk to the Environmental Defense about this. Their uh, plastics program manager, Ashley Wallace, joins the show right now. Ashley, welcome to the show. Good to have you on. Good. Thanks for having me. You know, it is Waste Reduction Week, and I was shocked in this announcement to find out, and maybe naively shocked because people have been saying it for years that we don't do as good a job as we could in recycling, that more than 70% of our recycling ends up in landfills. Um, So I'm on board with this if it helps keep some things out of landfills. But I know that the environmental defense, when it comes to an announcement like this, probably would have a wish list. How many of your items were checked off today? Um, not as many as I would like to see. I mean, we have been supportive of this idea of making producers financially and operationally responsible for the blue box. Um, but uh, that kind of system is called extended producer responsibility. And it only really works if the government sets really high diversion targets um, and that it includes all sources. And right now what the government's saying is this regulation is going to only continue to address the waste we produce at home. So residential recycling, it's not going to include the recyclables um, in uh, business and institutional sectors. And on top of that, the targets they're proposing are pretty low. So there's still going to be a lot of waste, especially plastic, ending up in landfill. Okay, give us an idea of what kind of recyclables that businesses are are producing that aren't going to be addressed. So the targets are only for residential waste. That means if you have a takeout container that you consume um, on the go at a local restaurant, that restaurant has a contract with a private waste hauler. And this regulation isn't going to require that they recycle any more than they already do. This is only going to tackle the recyclables that are considered to be sold for at-home consumption. So that would be things like your ketchup bottle, your laundry detergent container, um, maybe your strawberry kind of clamshell and that sort of thing. Um, You mentioned earlier that there's a bunch of new products being added to the blue box, things like straws or cutlery, uh, but those are put under a very large category of rigid plastic. And 
the uh, producers only have to recycle 55% of that. And so it's likely that while you could put those items in your blue box, they're not going to go out of their way to recycle those materials we know are hard to recycle if they can hit that pretty low target just by targeting shampoo bottles, laundry detergent containers, and pop bottles. Well, I was thinking with the single-use, you know, the stir sticks and, and the forks and knives and things, those are single-use plastics that we're going to phase out anyway. So it sounds like a good news story for something that won't exist very long anyways, at least um, you know, we won't be able to get our hands on it too too easily. Yeah, that is true. And there was a part of me that was a little bit like, oh, you know, it's interesting to announce that these are all of the new items when we know that these items aren't even going to be an issue in a year anyway. All right. It, we're sounding like buzzkills here, and I, I don't want to because there, there were some good points in this announcement today. And can we highlight some of those? Um, I was happy to see that they were really clear about their commitment to preserving the existing deposit return program for alcoholic beverage containers. Um, we know that that program is a best in class. Uh, 97% of our beer bottles are reused up to 15 times before they're recycled. Um, And earlier in the consultation process, we were concerned that that program would be under threat. So great to see that that was preserved. I'm also happy to see that they have carved out a special target just for other beverage containers because we know that pop bottles and water bottles um, are really common littered item in the environment. Um, And a higher target could push these producers to adopt a deposit return program like we have for alcoholic beverage containers for non-alcoholic beverage and really get Ontario to that, um, keeping those bottles out of the landfill and the environment and, and getting them efficiently recycled. One of the things I can point out as a positive in the announcement today about the Blue Box uh, overhaul is the standardization across uh, the board province-wide of the list of materials that will be accepted into the Blue Box. Because I can't tell you how many times I visited people's, you know, secondary homes or I've just went to see a friend in another uh, jurisdiction. And, you know, you go to throw something in the Blue Box and they're like, sorry, you know what, we don't take those here. So I'm just going to pitch it. Or, you know, at, at the cottage, we have to bring things home because they don't accept them in that jurisdiction, but they do at home. And I think people get lazy when they're confused. Yeah. And I think that that's a great point. Um, I do think, however, as I was mentioning earlier with the, the kind of delineation between residential waste and commercial waste, um, one of the things I wanted to see with the inclusion What I wanted, if they had included commercial waste, would be that standardization between work and home. So you're right that different municipalities will have the same rules now, but it's still quite possible that something that's recyclable at home will not be recyclable at the office or at the mall or at an arena. That's a good point. Okay, so now I'm getting it. I'm because I was I was wondering what you're talking about when you say that you know commercial properties don't have the same uh, they don't have to adhere to the same uh, recycling program. So it, it, we could be talking about similar items, but just because your business is, you don't have to recycle those. Yeah, this regulation is only focused on residential waste. So this is specifically the stuff, the waste that we're producing at home, not the waste that comes out of businesses, malls, arenas, etc. It was a good news story for people living in apartment buildings that have been completely frustrated, as well as long-term care homes, schools, uh, that we Ontario would now give them more opportunities to recycle as well and keep their communities clean, though, no? 
I do need to look more detailed at the, that specific part of the regulation, which was actually just released about 10 minutes ago. I know through the consultation process that those uh, multi-unit buildings were not going to be eligible to join the program until after the transition period. So I'm curious to know if that has changed. The transition period for this regulation, so the amount of the length of time it will take from the program going from municipal control to producer control is expected to take about three to four years. And so multi-residential apartment dwellers wouldn't be eligible to um, join the program until 2026. Um, right. So I, I don't know if that has changed, but um, my, my feeling, my, my read so far is that it hasn't. Ashley, could the pro- do you think the program could have been affected by COVID? Because, you know, the idea that, and I only have about 30 seconds here for your answer, that um, the residences have to, you know, this affects residential recycling, but not commercial recycling. They're trying to take a little pressure off the businesses during, the, you know, this pandemic. It's like another thing that businesses just can't wrap their heads around right now. So My maybe it's hopeful is- we can see it in the future. My understanding, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future, for sure. I think especially if we all kind of graze this as a significant issue. But my understanding is right from the get-go, they were pretty intentional about narrowing the scope to residential. Um, and they started the consultation long before the pandemic. Ashley, I want to thank you for your time. You've really given us a different perspective on this story. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Have a great day. That's Ashley Wallace. She is the Environmental Defense's Plastic Program Manager. All right. A few tickets were issued for uh, numbskulls out demonstrating, breaking public health uh, guidelines, not masking, and walking down Young Street in an anti-maskers protest over the weekend. It's just infuriating to me that you could be so irresponsible and selfish. But, hey, uh, that's just the way it is in uh, 2020, which is unfortunate. I think most of us, though, have embraced masking. And speaking of masking, I think a lot of people are looking towards Halloween thinking, okay, maybe I can put on a mask and hand out candy this year. Like, how can I do this safely? Because I think one thing that people are really um, of trying to avoid as much as possible is cancellation of Halloween. And that's because, like, think about how much our kids have taken on since March. I know you're stressed out, but a little bit of joy, a little bit of of something just for them would be nice because summer wasn't normal. They haven't been able to play with friends the same way. School is not at all normal. So I love this story that I saw over the weekend about a Toronto plumber that is trying to make Halloween a little more normal, at least for the people in his hood, And he's doing it by supporting his local uh, food bank as well. He's creating what he's calling candy shoots. Please welcome to the show, Jeff Burke. He's the owner of Watermark Plumbing Service. Jeff, hey, thanks for being here. Yeah, no problem at all. First of all, what neighborhood are you in? Because every story I keep reading about you, it's Toronto neighborhood, Toronto neighborhood. Which one? Why is it so quiet? Why why are you under wraps? we're, We're in the junction area, but we work from about the annex over to Roncesvalles. Okay, so you came up with this idea of creating what you're calling a candy shoot. Fill us in on what this is. It's a safe way to hand out candy during the holidays. Yeah, so I can't take credit for it. I uh, I actually saw it online a few weeks ago. It was a gentleman, I believe, in the state somewhere, in, maybe in Ohio, who came up with this thing. And uh, the idea is it's a you know a piece of our plumbing pipe uh, strapped to a railing. You know, we're using a five-foot-long section of pipe, and the idea is, the parent or whoever it is is standing at the top of the stairs. They drop the candy into the candy chute and the kid is waiting there at the bottom and the candy just drops right in. Right. What could possibly go wrong? I guess, you know, uh, maybe dropping the candy too quick 
maybe handfuls of candy flying out at the kids. But at the end of the day, it's a great way to physically distance uh, between you and the kids. So PVC pipe, isn't it? No, I'm currently, my bathroom is half ripped up because we're currently under a home renovation. But correct me if I'm wrong, it's black. How are you getting around that? So we're not actually using that black piping. Uh, What we're using, it starts out white. It's uh, the piping that you would have underground in your home. Uh, okay. So it's yeah, it starts out white. We uh, clean it off and then spray paint it orange. And then once it's all dry and set, we take some black duct tape and you know wrap it around the pipe, and you have a little bit of a Halloween festive feel. I love this idea, but what I love about it more is the fact that you're not only giving people a, a safe way to hand out Halloween candy and keep this holiday alive for the kids, some sort of normalcy, is that you uh, had a goal of raising ten thousand dollars for the Daily ba- Bank uh, Food Bank. Daily Bread Food Bank, rather, by, uh, you know, offering to install these candy shoots for neighbors. The minimum donation was 25 bucks for the food bank. And in two days, you had 400 orders. So you're not taking any more orders. But how did you get the message out there? So, again, just in a couple of these uh, neighborhood Facebook groups, um, what I do is I post a weekly, I guess you could call it a weekly blog in these groups called How Not to Call a Plumber. So I have a little bit of a following. People seem to like those things. And uh, yeah. yeah, so it, it was great. I, you know, used my How Not to Call a Plumber weekly post to instead raise awareness for this and offer this uh, this little fundraising initiative that we can put together. Okay, my uh, math isn't the greatest. That's why I host a radio show. But uh, 25 bucks a pop times 400, you're talking uh, 9,600 bucks, but that's at the very minimum. Do you know how much you're, you're raised for the Daily Bread Food Bank? So as of this morning, I checked, we are over $16,000. Amazing. That must yeah. make you feel good. Absolutely. People have been, you know, really so giving. I think the nice thing through this is it's, you know, it's a, a polarizing time. The people who are struggling are struggling even more. And uh, it's nice to see that the people who have been able to keep their jobs and are doing well or actually, you know, quite willing to give back as well and give back in spades. Jeff, you called this the, the candy shoot challenge. Are you yeah. going to challenge other plumbers to take this on? Cause you apparently you can't do, you know, you're at capacity 400 orders. You get a lot of work to do and not, you know, withstanding your own work that you have to do for your clients. You're making these on the side and getting them out to people. Are you challenging other plumbers to take this uh, candy shoot challenge on in their neighborhood? You know, I haven't thought about it, but that would be great. It's uh, Do it now. <laughs> plumbers, I challenge you all to do it. If you're listening out there, <laughs> it's great. It's, oh. it's all materials that we have on hand uh, or we can easily get from our suppliers. Now, I was in Home Depot the other day, and I noticed that, uh, you know, they're all out of orange spray paint. They're all out of this uh, PVC piping. So you might have oh, to really? go directly through the supplier. But, uh, but yeah. So what what do you need? You need five feet of four-inch yeah. PVC pipe? Yeah, so you need five feet of four-inch PVC pipe. Um, we are also, just to be safe, rubbing them down with some acetone just to you know clean them off and everything, make yeah. sure the paint sticks. Uh, then it's just a can of orange spray paint, some black duct tape, and a few zip ties. You know, duct tape comes in different colors, and I'm just thinking right now, you could it, you don't have to get the the four inch PVC pipe. You could use the black plumbing plumbing pipe and get orange duct tape and do the yeah. same thing, couldn't you? Absolutely. And to be quite honest, we might have bought the city out of uh, black duct tape, so you might have to go with orange anyway. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, there's another a lot of ways around this. I mean, there was a guy out in uh, Whitby who was using uh, Eve's trough. I don't know if you saw him. I mean, that's a little harder to get your hands on. But anything that you can really slide the candy down into the kid's uh, bag would work in this case. No, absolutely. And you know what? The greatest thing is we uh, so we set up the first one at our house over the weekend. And I have a two year old and she just had a blast. You know, I could see these things. It's just you strap it right to the railing. So if you have a few steps that go up to your house, uh, you strap it right to the railing and, you know, you can drop the candy down there. But she was out there for if we let her, she would have been out there for hours dropping candy in, catching it at the bottom. I, uh, to be quite honest, could see these things going on to next year and even the year after. Yeah, it's a great idea. And you know what I think about it? You know, you've got this two-year-old and I have relatively treacherous stairs coming up my my house. I live in an old hundred-year-old house. And so I, I worry every single year when those kids walk up my stairs that somebody's going to trip on their costume. I mean, I am like uh, almost reaching out for these little kids and there's no touching this year. You can't get too close to kids. So I absolutely love this idea. And I'm I'm with you. I can see it catching on. But the great thing you've done is done a great thing for your uh, local charity, which desperately needs your help. So many people during this pandemic have turned to the Daily Bread Food Bank. So you're keeping Halloween, the Halloween dream alive. You're making it even more exciting for kids and you're helping out the Daily Food, uh, Daily Bread Food Bank. And hopefully on this show, you've inspired a lot of other plumbers to maybe do the same thing. If you, you know, get onto your local Facebook page or community Facebook page, you don't even have to be a plumber. You just have to be somebody that's handy and you could start a similar candy shoot challenge. Yeah, absolutely. It's really simple. Um, you can start your own challenge for anyone out there. You can make your own if you can get your hands on the material. It's really quite straightforward stuff. So it'll be fun this year. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you for your time. And if people want to, you know, follow your uh, plumbing, you know, how not to call a plumber uh, Facebook page, wh- where do they find you? They can find us on Facebook at uh, Watermark Plumbing Services, Inc. Or uh, they can follow me personally as well. Jeff, I want to thank you for your time. It's a great thing you're doing. Thank you very much. To find a path forward for safe, productive, and sustainable fishery for all harvesters, we must be able to remain peaceful. The acts of violence we have seen in the past days and weeks are disgusting, unacceptable, and racist in nature. It is a disgrace to see these threats and acts of intimidation and violence take place in this country. That's our Indigenous Services Minister, Mark Miller, who is one of four uh, Liberal Cabinet Ministers calling for an emergency debate in the House of Commons after a dispute between commercial fishermen and Mi'kmaq fisheries in uh, in southwest uh, Nova Scotia, and they have turned increasingly violent over last week and the weekend. We've had, as he said, acts of violence, racism, and threats, and all of this um, really is it leans on the government to make one thing very abundantly clear, which they have not done yet. What the heck is moderate? When you talk about a moderate livelihood fishery, because I think that really is the heart of what we're talking about here. This is a treaty right that the um, Indigenous First Nations people have to lobster fishing on the East Coast. But it is uh, the treaty right is for moderate livelihood fishery. We still don't know what that means exactly. So uh, MDP MP Gore Johns earlier on Sunday said Sadly, there's insufficient action 
taken by the federal government to ensure the safety of this community and its fishers and and deal with the underlying legal and constitutional issues which are at the root cause of this battle right now going on between First Nations people and Atlantic fishermen. Uh, Sylvain Charlebois is Professor of Food Policy and Distribution at Dalhousie University, joins us now. Um, Sylvain, is this something that you could have predicted would happen based on the treaty rights and the lack of clarity when it comes to what moderate livelihood fishery means? Well, it's 21 years in the making. Uh, In 1999, the Supreme Court was... Uh, was pretty clear. And uh, since then, uh, the policy has been ambiguous. So what we're seeing today, unfortunately, was, uh, was very much predictable. The, uh, the definition of moderate livelihood is, is needed, of course. But what I don't understand personally is, uh, is how um, the, the fishing community uh, his, his feels threatened by the Mi'kmaq people fishing. Uh, because when you look at the volume, it's, it's really insignificant compared mm-hmm. to uh, what is being harvested every single season. And some studies actually at Dalhousie, conducted by Dalhousie, have shown that really the volume harvested that can be potentially harvested by the Big Ma people is highly insignificant, regardless of whether or not we define what moderate livelihood is. So I'm honestly a little bit confused uh, about how uh, fishing communities are reacting to what's happening right now. Why is the volume so small? Is it they just don't have the resources? There's not enough of them taking advantage of the treaty rights? Why is it so small? It's just it's a small community. There's not there are not a whole lot of it's not we're not talking about a huge fleet of boats here. That's the thing. I mean they're not they don't have the same amount of quotas, same amount of vessels to harvest lobsters. Uh, and so I know that what is being argued is 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 the sustainability of of the stock. But the DFO has been quite clear. Uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, uh, the department has been quite clear. They're, they're, it's not what the activity going on right now is not com- compromising the stock for the upcoming season in November. Do they have a, a way to figure out what, what uh, amount of, of lobsters that the First Nations people are actually pulling uh, from their, their traps? Well, that's, I think that's really what the root cause of this whole thing is, and this is the way I'm interpreting this. I don't think there is, there is any consistent around uh, what data we should be looking at. Because if it boils down to, uh, to sustainability and the amount of stock available, well, what data are we looking at? Uh, and do we trust the DFO on the data provided to... Uh, to fishing communities. That's, I think that's really not being said right now in the media because mm-hmm. there's been a lot of, 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 um, of talks related to racism and violence, and I actually w- would agree with that. I think there's a lot of things that have happened that shouldn't have happened. But in order to build trust, in order to build relationship, in order to, uh, to conduct uh, fishing at peace, you need strong data. And I'm not sure we agree on what that data should look like or should okay, be. So, 
So let me ask you this. Have the tensions been strained for years? You were talking about a 1999 Supreme Court ruling, and I believe that ruling was that the uh, First Nations people had a right to uh, fish and and pull a moderate livelihood um, out of the uh, waterways on an off-season. And that's what the whole thing revolves around is is that the commercial fishermen are not allowed to fish during this time have uh the first nations people and and the fishermen that are commercial fishermen have they always had this tension or has it been escalating over the past you know decade well sort of uh i would say that right now uh the mi'kmaq people uh is exercising its right to fish it's Had legal. they not in what the past? Doing is absolutely legal. <laughs> right. So, but, but why have but we this seen this violence now? Have they not? Actively. Right. It just yeah, seems like so. it's a story now. You know, I, I heard about a month ago when this started, you know, I was keeping my eye on this story, but it was like uh, commercial fishermen were going and taking First Na- Nations traps and pulling them from the water. And they said, they can keep pulling them. We're, st- we're still going to keep dropping them. So you're not going to deter us. But this, I'm this seems like a new story. This hasn't been happening over the last decade, has it? This, this the, the, back and the, forth? The, the, the difference this time around, and this is the way I'm interpreting uh, the situation, uh, is that they, they are much more active this year, and they've decided as a community to exercise their right. Oh. And so they're not breaking the law. They're, they actually have the right to do what they're doing. But again, with with... The fishing community pays millions of dollars of quotas and equipment uh, to to get uh, these lobsters, uh, and that's probably what the source of the frustration is. And uh, and frankly, when you live in rural Nova Scotia, that's the only job you have access to. Right, that's that or tourism. A lot of frustration. Right, that or tourism, and we know tourism is dried up. I mean, I I was out in the Digby Neck where this is going on. And there's not a lot going on. And when you see those fishermen that, you know, are, are you know, raking the, the bottom of the, the ocean floor for oysters and you, you see that they're not pulling up a ton, you can understand why they're concerned about their livelihood. But at the end of the day, the Nova Scotia Premier, uh, Stephen McNeil, who we reached out to but wasn't available today to be on the show, he said that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans needs to clear clarify what constitutes legal harvesting uh, under a moderated livelihood fishery. And I think that that definition has to be defined. Do you think the feds are dropping the ball here? Especially in order order to define it, you need data. And, uh, and I'm not sure either they don't have it or if they do have it, a few people actually trust the data. That's really at the core, what the, what the problem is, I think. Now, in regards to the situation, I think the only people to be blamed here is Ottawa. I mean, we need right. leadership. On Friday, uh, the two leaders, the chief and the leader of the fishermen union, actually met together without Ottawa involved. So, so the, the leadership, the local leadership, is actually trying to resolve this issue without, without Ottawa being involved, which is unfortunate. The thugs... And the people uh, breaking things and, and showing violence uh, are, are really the ones that should be condemned. But, but I, I, should, I should remind people that there is some local leadership trying to resolve this issue, but with, sure. without Ottawa. They're being threatened Ottawa, as well. It would be easier. Yeah, they're being threatened. They're being intimidated as well, I hear, the commercial fishermen that are trying to you know, uh, calm things down a bit. Um, should the RCMP be protecting the First Nations community? 
in this situation. I mean, they are legitimately within their right, within the Supreme Court decision to fish. That's right. Yes. I would I would let uh, the minister respond to that question. It's not my area of expertise, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. Well, Sylvan, it's been interesting having you on the show and getting your insight in this, because uh, I think that you're the only one that's pointed out we don't have the data. We don't know how much they're pulling. So how can we uh, figure out what a moderate livelihood fishery looks like and how can we define that if we actually don't know how much they're pulling? Exactly. And it's been it's been a deficiency at the DFO for many, many years. And so I know there's a lot of call and including our, our, our premier asking for a definition, but you need to use data and science in order to establish a definition. And I'm not sure we're there yet. That's the problem. So Van, I want to thank you for your time. You have yourself a fantastic afternoon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Policy and Distribution at Dalhousie, talking about this story, which has really come to a, a head this past weekend in Nova Scotia with the lobster fishermen um, and violence towards First Nations who are exercising their treaty rights. Whether you like it or not, this is the, the Fed's problem. Because unless you have clear language and unless you can show that things are going on that are fair with regard to First Nations and commercial fishermen, you've got some problems. You were just setting people up for a battle. And that is unfortunate because at the end of the day, this is a very small community. And if anyone should be tight during this pandemic, it should be people living in a small community where everybody pretty much knows everybody else and where they're all seriously in it together. It's a symbiotic relationship. Everybody has to exist together. Hey, thanks for tuning in to the Kelly Cotrera Show on podcast. Don't forget, we broadcast live three hours daily, Monday through Friday, 9 to noon on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Have a great afternoon.